Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome back to Unbuckled. This week, we got a great episode for you with Archer's LSM Scott Ratliff, one of the most genuine dudes off the field. He flips a real switch come game time. In this episode, we cover everything from the best trash talkers in the pros to growing the game overseas to the best Dodgers that Rat has ever had to guard. Let's dive in to Unbuckle Chinstrap, Episode 7. Rat, what's good, brother? How we doing? Hey, what's up, Jules? Doing well, man. How are you? I'm good, man. Where are you posted up right now? I am at my home in uh, beautiful Atlanta, Georgia, where it is been 65 and sunny all week and fall is, is still in the air. I think it's funny. I was down there in Atlanta with you probably a month and a half ago, maybe two months, just visiting my brother, uh, Mike Terry. He's down there in the ATL, stopped in with you. And I just was thinking about the first time that I had actually ran into you or interacted with you in a game. It was uh, 2019 season. And I just remember coming off the field and you kind of going out like almost to trip me a little bit and then chirp me as I was running off the field. And I was just like, fuck this dude. Like I only knew him for his social media. He acts like this nice guy, like all this stuff. And I'm like, this guy is just a dick. Um, and I just actually got to know you and, and understand you a little bit better, your, your perspective. But um, can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, how you're able to balance, you know, the competitive nature that you have and, and the ferocity with, you know, the persona and the person that, you know, you live by every day? Yeah, for sure. And so it's funny because uh, I don't know if I remember that. I mean, that sounds like me for sure. Um, <laughs> but a lot of my like closest friendships um, are have started with like kind of exchanging trash talk on the field. I think of a guy, Kevin Cooper, I know is out there in San Diego who, uh, you know, we were almost ready to fight on a field in an MLL game a few years back. And then that blossomed into a great friendship. And then my current teammate, Mark McNeil, um, I think was maybe playing with you down in Florida and uh, him and I had a pretty good run and verbal altercation on the field as well. And, and now we've really grown into a great friendship and, and duo on the field. So it, it's, it's kind of funny how it starts like that, but you know, I, it's always been a little bit of part of my nature. I, I, I think when I was young, I was like definitely a, a big chip on my shoulder guy. I'm just not really being the biggest, most athletic guy on the field for one. And then, you know, as I got to college, just feeling like I'm the kid from Georgia that, that has to prove myself and wasn't really a big time recruit, didn't have a lot of offers. So I always had that, I think just that competitive nature and that drive. And I think a lot of it also, my dad played the game and, you know, one of those things I can remember him preaching to me from the time I was young was you'd be the, the meanest guy on the field and the nicest guy off the field. And like, that was really just how he taught me to approach the game. And, and, um, you know, I never, obviously haven't really gotten to see him play, but just hearing stories about him and then knowing what he's like, um, obviously as a father and as a man, I think he, he certainly instilled that in me and kind of taught me to be able to flip that switch and, you know, mix it up and, and, and be mean and, and be competitive on the field. And then know that, you know, the second the game ends, that gets, that gets left there. Do you have any advice for, you know, some of the younger guys out there who might have trouble flipping that switch or, you know, when they are able to flip it, they can't really turn it off or separate the game uh, and that competitive nature from real life. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, it's gotta be authentic, right? If that's not like your personality, then you're going to be able to tell. And, and so I don't like, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't teach kids to, to necessarily to talk trash. I think that, again, if that's something that's, that's fits your personality and it's authentic when you do it. And like, I know for me, it just, I, I find it that it generates energy. You know, sometimes if, if I'm feeling a little flat or if I sense the team is feeling a little flat, um, it's a way for me to kind of 
generate some energy for myself, which then hopefully I can, I can spill over and, and share with my team. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, there's a time and a place for it. And I think that the guys who do it the best um, are the ones who are just truly being themselves and, and aren't necessarily looking to act outside of their own personality, but instead just kind of embrace, you know, embrace that competitive fire that, that comes over them. And, you know, for anybody that, that does play like that or that feels like they have trouble turning it off. I mean, I, I look at you know, guys that I, I look up to, but guys like the Thompson brothers and, and just some of the toughest players that I've ever played against don't say anything. Right. And, and they really have complete control of their emotions. I mean, you think of a guy like Zed is another great example of that, you know, after the, the tournament that he just had. Um, so I really think there's a balance and it's something that I've worked on as I've gotten older and, and gotten into leadership roles in my career is just making sure that, you know, that there is a healthy balance and that I'm going about that in the right way and, and you know, not ending up doing anything that's going to hurt my team or that's going to make me play outside of myself, which is obviously what you don't want. Absolutely. Who, who do you think the biggest trash talker in our league is? I mean, I play with Dominique Alexander and, you know, he, he pretty much, I don't know how he, <laughs> how he has so much breath. He pretty much talks from start to finish the entire game. And it's really fun with him because the contrast of his and my style with that is like, I'm a little more rude and aggressive, I think, um, where he is just so funny. Right. And so like, I've been on the other side of his trash talk and he's smiling at you and he's, he's really witty and he's really clever. So it's definitely like a different style. Um, I think he can get under people's skin. I think if you're really frustrated and you see his big smile and, and his goofy laugh on the other side, it can it can certainly get under your skin a little bit. Um, but as far as like just consistent in your ear guys, um, he's got to be up there near the top of the list. You know, your your boy Ryder, um, you know, I've heard him with some pretty good chirps. So those are two guys that, that maybe come to mind. Dude, uh, did you see the uh, – on TikTok? They put it on TikTok, but then they also put it on uh, PLL, Ryder talking shit to Callum. Yeah, I did. I did. That was good. A lot of the best <laughs> trash talk does come over there at the box. It's it's a lot of times it's it like the, it's your D middies who are and your LSMs who are kind of coming in and out all the time, and then you know you get an attackman over there occasionally in the sub game. Um, but they always have the mics over there, so it seems like that's where a lot of the best clips come from. Is is when we're all standing over there in the box. Yeah, it gets heated over there. It's an art, honestly, to be able to come up with you know stuff on the fly just to be able to shit talk people. It's not something I've always been great at. I've, I've tried to, you know, think a little bit more strategically about it. And like, you know, the the times that I pick and choose my spots to talk shit, but there's some guys, you know, like Ryder, who just constant, Neek, just constantly have, you know, things up their sleeve. Um, but for you, Rat, right now, you know, at this stage in your career, you know, what are you thinking about? How do you see yourself as a player? You know, what are the next kind of phases? I know we talked a little about it, talked about it a little bit when we were down in Atlanta. Um, you know, some of the, the sacrifices you're starting to make to just focus on, you know, your professional career a little bit more on the field. So can you just talk to us a little bit about where you're at with all that? Yeah, you know, so I mean, it's crazy. It's I've played eight seasons now professionally. So you certainly, you know, start to develop a different perspective as you like look at the, if you want to call it the back half of your career. I'm 29. So, you know, by no stretch of the imagination, do I feel like I'm through my prime. Um, you know, I think I still have an opportunity to get better. I think I got better from my first year with the archers and into this bubble situation. And so, you know, I'm, I'm definitely just in, of that mindset of figuring out how can I continue to improve? I recognize that I do think there's a, you know, this, this kind of unique time frame in your career when you're in your late twenties and your early thirties, where you, you do still have the ability to push your body and play at peak athleticism, but you also have, you know, the wisdom that comes with experience. And so I, I think if you look across most professional sports, you know, you're going to find the top guys playing at their top level, you know, in that 28 to 32 kind of time frame. So for me, it's definitely just been a commitment of, 
making sure that I, I can get everything I can out of myself, you know, and, and I maximize these years. You know, I, I'm really excited about the team that I play on, the coaches that I play for, the teammates I have. I have yet to win a championship professionally, so it, it completely comes down to that for me at, at this point. You know, I was lucky enough to be a part of a championship team in college in 2012, and you know, that's almost 10 years ago now. So I am, uh, I'm certainly hungry to win, and I just recognize that if I can – find ways to get the best out of myself to improve in the parts of the game that, that maybe aren't my strengths. Um, and then more than anything else, and just learning from a lot of great coaches over the years, but finding ways to make people around me better and, and to lift up my teammates. Um, you know, ultimately I think that's kind of what the, what the end game is. And, and hopefully that leads to a championship. And I think it's, it's pretty clear to see you look at, you know, the, they're doing player rankings right now and four of the top five guys are, are whip snakes, right. And they're winning all their games and they're winning championships. So the individual success and things like that, um, in this sport, in such a team sport, it's very much tied to um, the success of your team. So just trying to be creative and, and figure out ways to continue to get better and to help the archers get better. Um, you know, and some of the things we talked about, whether that's, you know, as you get older, changing your diet, changing the way you train, investing a little bit more into that side of, of my life um, has been something over the last year that I think has really helped me to continue to, you know, progress as a, as a player and take a step forward. Yeah, and I think you- Correct me if I'm wrong, but you took a leap um, on the player rankings from last year to this year, correct? Yeah, I think a, I think a small one is 33 to 27 or something like that. Was there, you know, that I know you talked a little bit about the training side of it, but was there a particular thing that you felt this past year, kind of going into 2020, and you know, maybe some things going into 2021 that you're really, you know, focused on, and if you can, you know, dial in on and be consistent with it, you you think you could take another leap, you know, at this stage in your career. Yeah. So I think really one of the biggest things, and, you know, I've been really lucky with, with being healthy. I've, I haven't missed a game in, you know, eight seasons playing professionally, but in the last couple of years, I did start to deal with some nagging things, right. Things that aren't going to keep me off the field, but um, things that happen when you get to, you know, uh, year eight of, of playing midfield and running up and down the field, just tendonitis and things like that. So, you know, last year I spent a lot of time really working on my training routine to just to be healthy. Right. And just to make sure that I could stay healthy and that I could train kind of at full capacity for an entire offseason without having to, you know, end up in PT and then working through tendonitis and things like that. Um, and so that had a lot to do with just the way that I was lifting and training. You know, I, I wanted to get stronger, but when I was lifting heavy weights, the way that I had, you know, I grew up in Georgia football culture. So it was, you know, squat, bench, power clean from the time I was in ninth grade, you know, pretty much until these last couple of years. Um, so just like investing into, trainers to, to help learn and understand how I could continue to lift and continue to get stronger without, you know, taking that same wear and tear on some of my joints, um, you know, that I had. So, uh, wanted to put on weight. I played about 10 pounds heavier this season. And, and, um, I think most of that again, just came from that commitment to, to lifting weights and getting in the gym. And I think that's something that I'm going to continue to push hard on this off season is, is just getting stronger, um, being able to kind of take on some of these bigger, more physical players that are, are popping up all over the league. Now, I think that's really important. Um, and then on top of that, you know, what I'd like to add for this next season is, is now just kind of reaching back to a conditioning level that I I had at at one point in my career when I was younger, you know, I, I, um, used to commit a ton to long distance running and, and still do, but some of those same injury struggles, I think made it harder for me to, at the same level that I was before. Um, but I feel like I've overcome all that. I feel like I'm healthy. Mm -hmm. I've got this routine now in, in the gym where I can continue to get stronger. And now I think if I can couple that with, you know, really high level conditioning that helps me to win some of those races to the ground balls and, and have that extra burst to, uh, to create transition, which is so important on this, on this smaller field. Um, you know, you really got to be able to get out, get out quick to make those plays. Absolutely. It's exciting 
you know, being able to kind of think strategically about the improvements that you can make and you kind of see yourself with those little victories. And I know you, you talked to me a little bit about, you know, being the time that you're putting into that stuff is taking away, you know, time in other buckets. It's just kind of naturally what happens. And, you know, one of those buckets for you is, is kind of the leadership um, side of things, the stuff that you talk about on social media, you know, the type of, of, of man you are on a consistent basis. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the stuff that you have been doing in the past um, and kind of, you know, how that ties into you as a player right now? Yeah, of course. So, you know, I, I do, I work, um, you know, I work in leadership development. I work with um, primarily a lot of high school athletes here in the greater Atlanta area and lacrosse and, and other sports, but I've, I've been doing this for about five years and got involved in, in leadership development through my mom, who um, essentially has done that in the corporate space for her entire career. So, you know, when I'm young and breaking into pro lacrosse and trying to figure out how to make a, a living as a player, you know, before the PLL and, and our wages are so low. And so you're, you're also, you know, trying to figure out a, a long-term career and how am I going to pay my bills and, and make money? And, you know, I was coaching lacrosse, but what I've, I've always been really passionate about is, is leadership. And it's just understanding like the behaviors and the habits that, you know, the, the mental toughness qualities that help guys end up being successful and, and have helped me so much over the course of my career. And, you know, a lot of the introduction to it for me just came from my own failures and things that I was going through in my life that I was trying to work through and learn from and grow and get better at. And I think when you take a really conscious kind of approach to that with yourself, it gives you the ability to now pass on that information and, and share the stories and take the things you've learned and, and what's worked for you and didn't work for you and share it with other people, right? And, and help them to to achieve their same goals. So I've done that, um, you know, pretty much consistently for the last five years. And, and as I mentioned to you, you know, that's one of the challenges that does to a certain extent still exist with pro lacrosse is, you know, obviously our, our wages are much better and, and the PLL has done such an incredible job of, of giving us this, this platform and this ability to, to kind of make a full-time living off of it. But it's like how much time. And I mean, I, you know, I'm sure I could talk to you. I, I know you just had Deemer on. I mean, he's another one or you talk to Paul it would be kind of a, the biggest example, but it's like, how do you delegate your time between, you know, some of these side passions and careers and things that you have going on and then also your training and, and everything else. And I've just found as I've gotten older, you know, it used to be I could pop into the gym for an hour and knock out my workout and I was out of there. And then I, you know, had the energy to run around and do 15 other things that day. Um, you know, now I need to be more methodical with my approach to, to being a great player. And I think that year one in the PLL opened my eyes to that a little bit. I just, the level of play was raised and the level of commitment across the board from, from players and coaches I felt was higher. Um, and it was, it was a challenge and I think it reinvigorated me a lot. And so I just made a conscious effort to say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to continue to share what I share and, and, you know, be the person I am. And I'm going to continue to work with, with specifically with kids locally here in Atlanta, because I love doing that. And I think that it, you know, I learn a lot from it and, and it makes me better. Um, but I'm going to prioritize my training and my on-field you know, performance above everything else. And so if that means, you know, taking on a little bit, you know, a few less clients or, or um, taking on a little bit, you know, less work outside of lacrosse so that I can spend two, three hours in the gym and I can go to the PT and I can get in the ice bath and I can go to the store and, and buy my food and cook all my own meals. Um, I think those are just some of the sacrifices that I've had to make to continue to play at the highest level. And, and, uh, you know, I, obviously I know you're, you're still young and, and far from, from, you know, hitting your prime. But I just think that's got the harder part as you get older is you don't want to see yourself, you know, playing below the level that you believe you're capable of playing. And, and so as I continue to advance in my career, 
um, you know, I think that's just motivated me to look to make changes and whether that's in my style of play or my preparation or my diet or my training, um, but just make sure that I'm not falling behind in, in those areas. It's definitely one of those hidden things that, you know, if you're not a professional player or you're not close to, you know, guys in professional lacrosse, you don't, you know, fully understand you know, kind of how that time is delegated and, and the sacrifices that do need to be made. I think that at some point someone someone should really look into it more and, and talk about some of the guys that have really made it work um, and the impacts that they've been able to have both on and off the field um, across the board. Because it's been crazy to hear some of the stories of guys, you know, starting businesses and doing different things and then me being like, how the hell are they able to, you know, sustain this level of play? I know personally I balance a lot right now, you know, with my Mission Prime stuff and, you know, starting with the Black Lacrosse Alliance things and, you know, the Juke Lab. And it's hard, um, you know, to be able to wake up in the morning and, and say like, okay, like I have to be able to get X, Y, Z done. But at the end of the day, you're a professional player, like a all season. That's what we want, you know, at the, in the back of our mind, like that's the biggest, most important thing to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, I know you talk a little bit about the leadership things. Are there, um, you know, with that and being able to kind of balance those two things, those couple of things, are you able to take some of your own lessons um, and kind of apply them over and to kind of that balance and, and you being a player and maybe what are, one or two of those things that you're kind of preaching um, that are really important to you and kind of help, you know, you get through the, these kind of balances and these sacrifices? No, great question. So definitely. And that's, you know, part of the reason I love doing it and, and all the kind of collection of, of things that I do, I think all work together. And, um, you know, the, what I teach w- with leadership development is essentially, right, leadership's a habit. And it's, you know, building great habits and handling difficult situations is the way that you can train and prepare to become an excellent leader. If, things in your life and in sports or out of sports are all going well, it's pretty easy to be a leader. It's pretty easy to stay optimistic and to be kind and to make good decisions because there's, you know, there's not that tension. There's not that adversity there, but adversity is always going to strike. Right. So when it does, you know, are we prepared with how to handle it and can we use it to learn and to develop habits with how we face adversity? And so every time that I sit down with a kid and, you know, start to teach some of these strategies and these tools that, that, that I share with them, it's a reminder for me and developing great habits or great leadership skills is no different than lacrosse. It's about repetition. It's conscious, you know, purposeful repetition of certain thinking patterns of certain approaches to difficult conversations of, you know, understanding your emotions and your emotional level and where you're at and when you need to take a second and when you're you know ready to dive into problem solving. So it, it really, it applies across the board and you can take the same, you know, you, the same way that, that, the same approach you use to be great at your sport, you know, you can take that approach and, and basically apply it into anything in life and, and use it to be successful there. So I love having, you know, having those sessions going constantly because on top of, of talking with the kids and listening to what they're going through, maybe in their high school season or their college season, um, I'm sharing what I'm going through and here's, you know, what I'm dealing with, with the archers and here's how I'm thinking through it. And here's how I'm communicating to, to my teammates and coaches. And so it almost serves as a, it's a brainstorming session. It's, you know, I call them like a workout. It's like a mental workout for me to just kind of check myself and make sure that, you know, am I applying some of these things that, that I'm preaching all the time to other people and are there ways that I can be better? So a few of the big ones, you know, one thing that I've spent an awful lot of time working on is body language. And I teach that quite a bit is just how important it is to develop a habit of good body language when things aren't going your way. You know, and it can be as simple as if, if, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic is your natural instinctual reaction to throw your hands up and to shrug your shoulders or hit your horn. Well, like if that's my habit in traffic, then when a ref makes a call I don't like, 
I'm probably going to spend half a second hesitating to throw my hands up and argue with him. And that, you know, half a second could be the difference between a good play and a great play or, or a bad play and a good play. Um, and then on top of that, you know, body language is so it, it communicates to everybody around you. Right. And I, I try to get that through my kids' heads. It's like the first conversation you're ever going to have with your future college coach is through your body language. When he watches you and, and you shoot and it doesn't go in or the call doesn't go your way or maybe you get hit from behind, you know, what is your reaction? What does your body language say? And does it say that I'm the type of person that can handle it, pick up, stay positive and immediately get focused on my job? Or does my body language show my frustration and, and all these other things? So I teach that a lot and, and I work on it a lot because I think when I was younger in particular, I would get caught up in arguments with refs and things like that. And as a leader on a team, you know, when you're setting that example with, with your body language of taking, you know, your focus off of the things you can control, you're giving permission, you know, to, to everybody else to do the same thing. So I find that to be really important and, and something that maybe we don't think about quite as often, but because I'm teaching it all the time, it's like I catch myself, you know, Leo might start barking during this podcast and I'll like react and throw up my hands because I'm mad at my dog. And, and so I'll, I'll try to catch myself in those moments and just actively work on making my habit if something stresses me out you know, drop the shoulders, relax the face, like take a deep breath. And then a lot of times that can serve to center you so you can think through things going forward. So that's a big one. And then, you know, another just uh, a simple one is just, you know, I, I talk a lot about self-talk about how, you know, when we face adversity, we, we tend to go into these stories in our head about all the bad things that can come from, you know, this one piece of adversity we're facing. Right. And, and so, you know, being optimistic and, and developing a habit of, looking for the opportunity and seeing the positives and things. Um, you know, I think that can be really powerful and, and especially in a sport that, you know, games go up and down and teams go up and down and you take runs and you give up runs um, really like mastering your mind and being able to catch when those negative thoughts are starting to run on you and, and stop them and think into some more positive or optimistic emotions. You really can never practice that too much. And again, if I didn't teach it, you know, I don't know if it would be on top of my mind as much as it is. But since I am sharing this with kids and since I am teaching these strategies, I think it does help me to catch myself in, in some of those thinking patterns and try to flip them and, and try to become just a, a little bit more of an optimistic teammate and, and positive leader and communicator. And I think that's you know important. And outside of your mom, was there a player or a coach you know, that you felt really preached these kinds of things and you know invested into them and was able to communicate to them to you to kind of you know, ignite that fire, um, that these things were really important. Yeah. So I think there's a lot, you know, a guy who really the probably first started teaching me, um, just to understand, you know, the mental and emotional side of the game and of life was, was actually a Rutgers guy, Tim Pritz. So I know you've probably, you might've connected yeah, with him at some point in Atlanta, but he loves Rutgers and, and loves all you guys. Um, but he was my high school coach and he was really thoughtful about that. And I was like, so overly competitive in high school and so all in on it he really helped me to learn how to kind of hone in my thoughts and, and apply it in a more healthy way. Of course, you know, coach Toomey and coach Duan and, and coach Dan Shamadi at Loyola had a massive impact on me. Um, but then like getting into like specifically the leadership side of things and, and applying some of this, um, you know, the late Dave Huntley was, was a coach that was, was super impactful for me in, in this area. He really, he knew this was kind of the part of my life where I was, just starting to, to, you know, work with my mom and to teach some of these strategies and really understand them. And he just went out of his way to, to invest in me with it. And he would, you know, come into Atlanta early and take me out to dinner and talk through things with me. And all the time he would draw comparisons to, you know, to Brody Merrill and, and Jeff Snyder and some of the great, you know, team Canada leaders that he's had the chance to be around and would just point some of the things out that, 
maybe I teach or that I talk about that I don't do. And that's what I appreciated so much about Coach Hunts was he really kept it straight with me. And he loved pointing out, you know, he, he knew all this content that I was teaching and these things that I believed in. Um, and he really gave it to me straight when I was falling short myself and, and maybe letting my ego get in the way of things and stuff like that. So it was a short time I, I got to play for him, but um, he was somebody that like really invested with me into that part of it. Um, and it was a time where I really needed it, I think, as well um, in my career. So I, I was really grateful for that and that relationship. I've heard a lot of guys talk about Coach Huntley before. I, I unfortunately was never able to, to meet him, um, but I definitely know the impact that he's been able to have on a lot of players, including yourself. Um, and, you know, that just it really comes back to, you know, the relationships that we're able to develop. And I think for you, you're definitely someone that consciously is aware of how important it is to invest in positive relationships, people that, you know, are challenging you, uplifting you, you know, inspiring you. Um, and I know one of those guys for you is obviously, um, you know, Gittleman and, and for you as a, a player um, and a teammate, um, you guys have a lot together. I know your roommates um, and, you know, we're roommates at PLL Island. Um, but, you know, the, the stuff that you guys have been able to do with Give and Go Fund um, and, and what you've kind of been able to build there, could you, you talk a little bit about what, what started and, and what the reasoning for was was Give and Go Fund and, and kind of what your mission's been um, so far with it? Yeah, of course. So, yeah, I mean, you, you bring up Adam and, you know, Adam's been uh, just such a good, important friend for me in my life. And, you know, we, we came together in 2015 with the Boston Cannons and then both of us the next season came, went to Atlanta we shared three seasons together there, you know, now two in, in the PLL. So we've been through an awful lot both on and off the field together. And, and I think I've really learned and grown up with each other in, in that way, which is, you know, what makes us so close and, and, and obviously getting to be roommates with them and playing with them. It makes it so fun. Um, and so give and go, you know, it, it started really organically for him and I, you know, we um, along with, you know, Holman and, and some other guys, Dee Snides has, has done a bunch of this and Evan Connell and, and, um, you know, we, we were traveling the world because we wanted to travel the world. Right. And so we start planning vacations. And like, I, I hadn't had a stamp in my passport till I was 25. Like my whole life, just, I was never going on vacations. It was lacrosse. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm training, I'm doing this. So I didn't go abroad in college or spend a summer doing anything like that. So I definitely like got the travel bug. And the first trip I took actually wasn't with Adam. It was to Japan with, at the time it was drinking with Joey Sankey and Matt Gibson um, and we, you know, ran a bunch of clinics. And so like my, I got introduced to essentially like international travel and coaching internationally on the same trip. And it was just like the, you know, the best 10 days of my life. It was life changing and seeing lacrosse over there and getting to share it and seeing how excited and grateful and passionate they were about the game. So I came home from that trip, like, okay, you know, I want to keep doing this. And, you know, around the same time, Adam and Marcus took a trip and went around Europe. And just because this is the type of guys that they are, they were like, you know what, like, let's just find some lacrosse programs and see if we can run a free clinic and maybe we can meet some guys and, you know, have some fun, shoot around, you know, have a sweat on a day while we're over here. And I think they were in Czech Republic or something. So they did the same thing. They just set up clinics on their own. Mm -hmm. Obviously the, the lacrosse programs over there were pumped at the idea of having these guys out and college coaches and pro players. Um, and so they ran a few, few free clinics and that same feeling I had after Japan, you know, Adam had, and it kind of came to a head about a month later um, Gitz and I went down to, to Managua, Nicaragua with a, a nonprofit that's in the PLL assist program called Lacrosse Nations. And it was actually started by a, a former Virginia lacrosse player, Brett Hughes, who I had a relationship with as well. And Adam knows. Um, and what they're offering is basically like after school programming for, you know, severely poor kids who, who essentially don't have anything, you know, outside of school 
Um, they don't have any resources. There is no after school program. There is no organized sports. Their parents are all working. So, you know, if they're not given something to do, essentially they're, they're just kind of sitting out in the street when they finish school. And the cross the nations has been down there 15 years now and has expanded and has given these kids, you know, something to do every day after school. And Adam and I went down and we volunteered and we we're coaching, you know, we were coaching six hour days, five straight days and, and, you know, the heat in, in Nicaragua, but it was life changing. It was so fun. Again, the impact that, that it was so easy to see um, the positive impact it was having on kids and it was giving them structure and discipline. And there's rewards based systems for the kids that show up consistently. You can earn a stick and then you can earn a ball and then a helmet and things like that, that were just leading to so many positive things in these kids' lives. So that experience and that week kind of coaching together, I think just continued to kind of reassure Adam and I, like there's something here. And what also happened from that was the cross the nations came back to us and said, look, we had our best fundraising week of the year with you guys posting on social media all week. And so we realized like, obviously as professional players, we have a unique platform to speak to the lacrosse community. And that's the community that's going to be driven to support organizations like this. And so I think that's when we started kicking around the idea of like, okay, how can we formalize this at the very least? How can we be a fundraising you know, vehicle for existing organizations like lacrosse nations and many others who are all over the world, you know, doing great things. Um, and so over the next year or two, we, we continued to travel. We continued to run free clinics. We made relationships with programs all over the world and started to understand how can we help? Like, how can we fit into this puzzle piece and provide resources? Because the program in Hamburg, Germany doesn't need the same stuff that, you know, the after-school program in Managua, Nicaragua does. And there's different challenges in Buenos Aires for mm-hmm. Argentina lacrosse. And then there's, you know, different challenges in Belgium and all of these different places are at different stages of the of the growth of the sport. And, you know, I've had a front row seat at Atlanta. And lacrosse in Europe reminds me an awful lot of lacrosse in Georgia when I was growing up. A little disorganized, not a ton of people really training and taking it seriously, but, like, it's there. There's leagues, there's teams, there's numbers, there's coaches. Mm-hmm. Like, it's there very much exists. So I understood, like, what, you know, what are some of the challenges that these programs face and what are the ways that you can really grow it and – you know, the, the, the free clinics is kind of the surface level of what we do. It's our way of getting over there, um, bringing gear, which is massively important. It can be so expensive to buy and ship. So when you have players that are or, or coaches that are willing to throw three or four lacrosse bags on their back and load over, you know, lug it over to, to Brussels to get to a, to, to a youth program there, that can be really helpful and powerful in itself. And then you run the free clinics and you coach the coaches, you know, you find the people on the ground in these countries who are really motivated to help the sport grow and you push your resources towards them. Right. Cause I'm not going to be able to sustain a lacrosse program in you know, any other country in the world, if I'm living in Atlanta, Georgia, but if I can find the person who is inspired, who loves the game, who, you know, understands it and they need some money or some access to equipment, or maybe they need, you know, some, us to connect them with some college coaches that are willing to go live there for a summer and, and help coach and build a program, you know, that is something that we can do. So it's been really fun over the last two years to see all the places that Give and Go has taken us. You know, we have, uh, I've gotten to coach in over 20 countries and four different continents. You know, we've sent gear, we've got gear going on a military ship to Africa right now for, for the programs over in Uganda. I mean, we've sent gear all That's over the sick. world. Um, we've met a lot of really inspired people. We've helped fund the uh, the first ever college program on continental Europe, which was in, in Brussels, Belgium, and came from two kids who attended our free clinic. They got inspired. They committed to it. They made the national team. They came back to us. They said, look, we went to our university. We got funding. Here's what we need. We need help with gear. We need you to get over here and run, run another clinic. 
we need to attract enough girls and guys players out to the teams. So we took like an active engagement. STX was was really supportive and ended up gearing up the entire team. So lots of just really cool stories have just come organically because there are inspired people all over the world that are trying to use lacrosse as a as a vehicle for for really positive things. Um, but they need help and they need resources and they need access to the sport. And, and obviously, we're able to to fill that role for them in, in a lot of different ways. So really excited about where it's going and and. You know, to not answer too long-winded as I have a habit of doing, you know, we just announced these scholarship programs. Obviously, COVID kind of shut down travel, and there's not a lot of lacrosse being played anywhere in the world right at this this very moment. Um, so we said, okay, well, how can we continue to have an impact in a time like this? And you know, we we and obviously had, had talked and worked with you, but we announced the Kyle Harrison scholarship for, you know a black player who, who needs help to be a part of the sport. And, you know, both Adam and I, that's something that we were really passionate about and we were really excited to do. And, and Kyle was so great and supportive and, you know, we've had a bunch of applications come in. So we're really pumped about kind of starting to, to sort through that and, and work, work towards some winners at the end of the year here. Um, and then we announced the Turtle Island scholarship and partnering with Bombberry and, and Randy Stats. And, you know, those guys are really trying to make sure that, you know, the story of the game and the spirit of the game and the roots of the game, the education that, that needs to go along with, playing the game travels with it and on top of that they're, they're looking to empower indigenous communities and bring the sport back you know there's a ton of indigenous communities all over the united states who at one point you know in their history had a version of stickball or had lacrosse but have, have lost touch with that and so we've actually been able to be um in support of them connecting with a seneca tribe out in utah and adam's really taking a leadership role in this and getting Randy and Brendan out there for some, for some free clinics and some education. Um, and then as we look to the future, we'd really love to, you know, try to bring those guys out into the world and all these places that we've traveled and coached and make sure that as this game goes and everywhere the stick goes, you know, the story of it and the values of lacrosse travel with it. And so we, we talk a lot about that at our give and go events about the lacrosse community and the way we have each other's back and the responsibility we have to share the stick with others in our community and to be inclusive and in who, and who we invite out to play. Um, and again, I mean, I think we both know how much lacrosse has done for us in our life. So, you know, if we can find ways to help give more people access to this sport and invite more people into this like global lacrosse community, you know, that can be life changing for, for people in a lot of different situations. And it has been for me and, and I know for you. So we're, we're really excited about what we got going on. I appreciate you being so diligent and sharing that. I know, you know, sometimes it's you know not easy to get the message across or, or have people really understand um, you know, the value in, in what you're doing. And I think that what you guys are able to do, um, you know, not only are you able to share the sport in a lot of different places, um, but you're also able to make a lasting impact, you know, by communicating with those coaches and, and really inspiring them to then take the lead um, from from what you guys are able to give them. Um, so I, I'm super excited to continue to follow along um, with that. I know we talked about the scholarship stuff and you know, that was really exciting for me to see you guys roll that out and, and to hear that you're doing it with you know, Turtle Island and, and kind of the mission that, that they're doing. Um, I think that there's you know, a, a kind of a change and a cultural shift that's going on in lacrosse, uh, you know, in a lot of different ways um, across a lot of different spectrums. And I think that that's really where the future of the sport lies is, is guys like yourself, guys like, um, you know, Randy and, and Bomberry and, you know, the stuff that we're doing with BLA and, and different stuff like that, that is one ship kind of moving towards regaining that spirit in the sport and, and bringing back its roots and really trying to, you know, establish what the game should be about, um, as opposed to, I think, you know, some of the things that have happened over the years, just with, you know, financially, you know, what we've seen in, in public cross and, you know, just the, the growth of the sport without the spirit of the game, you know, being elevated at the simultaneous um, event of that happening. So uh, it's super exciting. And, you know, obviously, 
with the more that we're able to do off the field, um, you know, it, it's great. But the things that we're able to accomplish on the field are, are the sh- drives that ship. Um, and I know that, you, you know, you see that the better you are as a player, you know, the more likely people are going to invest in give and go fund. You know, the better I play, the more people are going to believe in the mission that I'm doing with Mission Prime because they understand that it, it's working to a certain degree, even though, you know, we understand the value of the things that we're putting and bringing to the table. Um, you know, but as a player this year, I know at PL Island, you know, you shook some things up a little bit with um, with your stick. Actually, you know, you switched up, you know, playing with a shorter stick before, started playing with a longer stick this season. Could you talk a little bit about that adjustment um, and, you know, just where you consider yourself as an LSM in the game right now? Yeah, for sure. So I started uh, I started playing with a cut-down stick probably about four years ago. I coached Jamie Monroe. Shout-out to Coach Monroe. He basically came to me, you know, the Blaze were out in the MLL – you know, we had Coach Huntley and we have all these Canadians. And so they were using me in a way where I was staying on offense the entire time. And they were basically playing box style offense five on five with me just hanging out up at the arc. And so playing so much offense um, and just needing to be able to protect my stick and control my stick. Um, you know, Jamie Monroe came to me and said, look, look at where Brody's stick is in relation to him. He's 6'4", you're 5'11", right? So why not cut just a little bit off so that stick's not taller than you and maybe you have better control of it. And so I did it reluctantly, and of course, like I fell in love with it. And and at, at a certain point, Jules, I might have gotten a little carried away. Right? I might have ended up cutting a, a few too many inches <laughs> off at certain points in my Blaze career. We'll just say that um, because it. I mean, I could notice it. Like ground balls in traffic, I was able to protect it better. You know, just the stick being lighter and and you know shooting the ball, I, I just felt like I could get shots off quicker. Um, so I think it coincided, frankly, like looking back now, a little bit with just. I maybe mentally was going in the wrong way of just kind of overvaluing my presence on offense to a certain extent. Again, and part of this just came from the situation I was in in Atlanta and what they were asking me to do and how I was playing. So I continued to do it because it it worked, you know, and I I was playing well and I enjoyed it. And I thought that I I agreed with Jamie's kind of general philosophy about, you know, why why play with the stick that's bigger, like play with one that, that kind of fits your height range basically. And mm-hmm. so I stuck with it. And then when I got into the PLL year one, I was cutting it down, but, but way less. So I'm talking, you know, I'm taking an inch off of the stick or something like that, which I know I think offensive players do as well, attackmen and things like that. So just a, a small edge, maybe it makes the stick a little bit more controllable. The, one of the big things I liked about it, like the shaft I was using my first year in the PLL was heavier. And I like a, as light of a shaft as I can get, right? Give me like the, the shaft meant for 14 year olds because the way I like to play and, and I like to be able to throw my stick around. And, you know, you look at some of these other poles that are scoring and shooting and they're, you know, and they're Earhart or Jared Newman. And like, these guys are huge and, and, you know, really big, strong players. And, um, you know, so I, I don't have some of that same advantage of, of being six, five and, you know, being able to get my stick 15 feet in the air to shoot down at a goalie and, and things like that. So I was just looking for an edge that, that I could get in that way and, and, and lightening my stick. But um, I think more than anything, and, and you know, we chatted about this and I, it kind of made me do some self-reflection on it. You know, I, I decided to use the full, the full length stick this year as much for a mental shift for you know, probably even more so than for what it actually does in the game. I, mean, I don't really know if that inch does or doesn't make a difference, but I knew coming into this season that yeah. I needed to improve defensively and I needed to improve as an off-ball defender and I needed to improve you know, in, in ways off the ground and I just wanted to have a commitment to playing a more physical defensive style of play. Um, and I just felt like it would be good for me to kind of like mentally make that. So I switched the shaft I used. I found the lightest one I could get full length 
um, and I played with it full length. And again, I don't think the stick necessarily did or didn't change my game, but I do think that that mental shift and that commitment did show up. And I, and I, you know, I was happy with some improvements that I made in those areas. So, you know, I think I'll look to continue to do that. And again, if I can continue to make this commitment to getting in bigger and stronger, um, that'll only help to hopefully add some range and, and be able to bring a two point presence and, and things like that, that I haven't yet really been able to do in, uh, in for the archers. So the rat going a little bit from the offensive side, back to the defensive side. Um, speaking of, you know, the defensive side and, and kind of stopping guys, what of your entire career, two questions, who's the best dodger that you've had to go against and who do you think has an all the all-time split dodge and i'll give you we'll say three for all-time split dodge one person for best you've ever guarded and i'll give you my three okay so it's it's hard i mean there's like you could answer that question in so many ways but obviously like my approach to guarding somebody is about winning the game right and so you know if it's a one-on-one competition there's probably different names that i would bring up than than playing a complete game on ball off ball you know, worrying about it, making a difference. I think, you know, and maybe it's a cop out because he's my teammate now, but I had a lot of battles with Tom Schreiber, you know, in, in the MLL days. Um, and he makes you work the full game. You know, he was one of the first guys he would, he would cut me off ball. Like a lot of times the, the top midi matchup, it, it becomes a very on ball matchup. It's like, if they don't have the ball, maybe they're just kind of hanging up towards the top of the arc. And so you're able to kind of pay a little attention where Tom, he's so good at cutting. He's so active. There's no weakness in his right or left hand. That That's one of the most challenging parts is not really having a good read on which way he's going to try to go. And then the last thing is he knows how to run off picks. And like, you know, in six-on-six six offense, like really how often are we just in a one-on-one situation? It's it's such a team style of, mm-hmm. of, of sport that the way that he uses picks and making you trying to – you're so worried about him, you end up doubling him and leaving step-down shooters or, you know, trying to figure out if you're going over or under – um, that's really difficult. So if I'm given just one answer as the toughest guy to guard, and you know, I get to do it in practice all the time, I think he's the guy uh, for me. But there, there's certainly other names that come up. Um, the best split dodges, um, you know, Kyle. So when I was at Loyola, um, we played Team USA after we won the championship in like a spring premiere. And I obviously, you know, looked up to Kyle my whole mm-hmm. life, kind of like everybody else. And so the first time he got the ball, you know, I'm a college kid and go out there to face him. And he split me pretty bad down the alley and stuck like an on the run 15 yard shot with his left hand, um, right in my face. And like, that was kind of like a um, weirdly a cool moment for me. I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's what I've been watching on TV all these years. So he's definitely in my, um, in my split dodge list, uh, of guys. Um, let's see who else is, is somebody that, you know, this may not this name might be somebody that surprises you, but I don't think people realize just how quick he is on his first move. Is is Miles? Um, Miles has a really good, really tough first move. You're sometimes you're so worried about the physical aspect of what he's about to do that you don't realize like he's got some serious shake too. Um, so I, just another guy that I've had a lot of battles with over my time uh, up top. Uh, his name comes to mind as 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 being somebody that's really tough to cover in, in a split dodge sort of situation. Um, yeah, I'll have to, I want to see who you bring up. I'll have to sit on my third. Like I, I feel that a lot of times the, the, the matchups that I'm confronted with, especially now in the PLL are not necessarily guys that are, that are running by you all the time. You know, you look at guys like John Haas and and Mm -hmm. Mike Chan and Chuck and, and, you know, some of the guys that are really productive, they're so good at playing off their teammates. And it's like, you can't let them get a step down shot. You can't let them get their hands free for one second. So it becomes almost, you know, to me, it's like, you see less of the true just 
you know, breaking somebody off type of Dodgers. And you, and you see more of these kind of cerebral players that are, that are really well-rounded that are having a lot of success at, at the midfield. Um, but as I ramble, another guy I know has, has broken me off several times in, my, in his career is Chaz Woodson. So I know he's a, an attackman typically. So I don't know if that's, if that's a, a, a allowed to answer that way. But when I just back of like, when have I just been absolutely put in the spin cycle um, those three guys of Kyle, Miles, and Chad have all, <laughs> have all done it to me. So I, I definitely am I'm willing to wear that. I think uh, there's easy ones that you can go with. And sometimes, well, at least in my perspective, the guys with the best split dodges, I don't, some guys have maybe been guys people don't even know about that I'm just like, dude, that guy can fucking shake. Right. But he's not, you know, as big a name. So I'll go Kyle, obviously. And Kyle was you know, the person that really coined what a jump bunny split was. And, you know, you saw a generation yeah. of players start to utilize that. I don't think too many guys do that that well um, anymore, to be honest. I think a lot of guys are splitting on the ground more. I think it's hard to do a jump split and create enough separation when you have an LSM on you because you don't get them to really bite hard one side. Like you're in the air and then you're coming back down as opposed to when you're taking a split on the ground, you're running and your momentum's going forward. So Kyle always did a great job of, getting right. so much separation that he could either fucking take a shot low to high right out of it or take two steps to the side and then, you know, do that jump shot. But Kyle, um, I think uh, Mark Millen was really, you know, as an attackman, but he was really yeah, for sure. one of the OGs to, you know, take the split dodge, break it down and, and really be effective at it going from one hand to another hand. Um, and then when I was a sophomore, and we played Penn State, this kid, Nick Aponte, um, who played with Ament on his line. Both had that little one-two split, and it was dirty. Like, just every time I knew that he was going to put our guy in a blender um, when he caught the ball, especially at a rushed approach like Ament did to Hartzell. <laughs> like, it's deadly. So those are my three guys. Um, he Grant caught me off guard, too. Like, you, you, when Grant came in, you're thinking, passer, 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 that's all you hear about. And then the first time you go against him when he dodges you, you're like, oh, shit. Like, he runs at you and chops those feet, and it's scary. You feel like a deer in a headlight. So <laughs> he is underrated. A name that came to mind um, while you were talking is is a guy who I, I was lucky enough to play with for a few years, but Matt McCready's. He's another Penn State guy. Um, oh, he's yeah. He's a little guy and, and just so shifty. And he used to – yeah, he used to put people on skates quite a bit. So he's another one. It's It's fun. Um, Joey Sankey, I mean, we, we could go on and on. There's so many, but it is fun watching those guys that have that ability. Uh, you're certainly one of them that can just put your foot in the ground and change direction. It's, it's, uh, it's not fun when you're on the other side of it. And, and you know, to go back to it, though, to, to the best single toughest guy to guard, the reason I, I go to Tom is his ability to go both ways. You know, most of the time when I'm going out there to approach, I feel like the percentages are telling me pretty good that I know which direction he's trying to go. And I, and you know, you start to cheat with Tom, you really are so unsure of if he's going to go right or left on you. Um, and that makes him like, just from a mental standpoint, way harder to cover. You have to be more patient and play off of him instead of, you know, some guys where you can kind of hedge towards one hand and bet on them not being able to score on you with their other hand. So I, the game's gone so two man and so one handed but at the end of the day, from an LSM perspective, for me, if I'm up there on an island up top with you, having that ability to go and score both ways is, is I think, game-changing. Totally. And, and obviously, the, the LSM, you know, the matchup one-on-one is not everything. And, and LSM is nothing without, you know, their rope unit. I know you've been lucky enough to play with some great rope units. Right now, you have Neek and Mark um, over there on the archers. And then 
in the past, you, you've rocked with Brent Adams and Josh Hawkins. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of playing with, you know, that group? I think it's a pretty impressive um, group. I think in the last 10 years, if you look at, you know, midfielders and the defensive midfielder position, it's, it's some of the best units that have you know ever been formed. Yeah, I mean, it's that's so true. It's such a just like a close deep, you know, defense is a six man unit, of course, but there is that, you know, there's the communication, what's happening on the crease and behind. And then there's the communication and what's going on on the perimeter up top. And so having great chemistry, you know, with your defensive midfield unit, being on the same page, you know, I mean, I brought up pick play multiple times, but that's just become such an important part of the game is how do you play two man games? How do you handle picks around the arc? Things like that. And, and what make, um, you know, so I'll start with, with Neek and, and Moose. What make them so good and so easy to play with is they get their hands on people all the time. And when, from, from a, when you're making slide decisions or when you're trying to decide if you have to fight through a pick or not, indecisiveness makes it really hard, right? A D-Midi who can stay in front of guys but never really makes contact, sometimes you don't, you don't slide because you're not sure if they're beat and then they're backpedaled into a bad spot of the field and then it's too late, you know? Mark and Neek make it easy. They get their hands on guys outside of the arc. You know, you can tell right off the bat, either more times than not, it feels like they just physically dominate the matchup. Um, but if they are going to get beat or if it yeah, is a situation wow. where you need to slide, you know, you know before they've even entered the arc that like, okay, I'm going. And they both use their arms and their sticks and their, their physicality so well that they tie people up that a lot of times I can go, I can slide to create turnovers, not necessarily just slide to, to support them because they do such a good job of getting up under guys' mm-hmm. arms and of, of stopping their, their momentum. Um, so they're the best group I've played with from a defensive perspective. Um, like as far as just trusting them on on-ball defense and feeling like I have really good chemistry with them with pick play and with how we're going to slide to each other, you know, we don't pay hardly any attention to matchups between the three of us. We feel really good about any of us kind of covering anybody. Um, and also I think what works out well with them is we're different, right? I, you know, probably my bigger strength is my ability to keep up with people. Um, and, you know, play some of the quicker and the faster players and play the, the shooters and the guys that are, you know, are, are more of the heady off ball scorers where those guys are great at staring somebody down one-on-one, you know, that, that's either big or strong or that's really just trying to win a matchup and, and go score. So I think we, we work well together. You know, we can look at a lot of midfield units and we can figure mm-hmm. out a way to say, okay, you know, you got Sergio and Miles, or at least we got two big dudes too that can go out there and, and bang bodies with them and then, you know, I can try to run around and chase Brent or, or yourself or whatever, you know, whoever else is coming out of the box. So we feel like we match up well with the three of us together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a strength. You know, you mentioned Josh and Brent. Um, what made that group so fun was the three of us all had really similar offensive mindsets. And um, so much of transition offense is about, one, it's about conditioning. And I've brought that up a few times, but having being in good enough shape to sit down and play 50 seconds of defense and then sprint full speed up the field, make clear and good decisions, have good stick work, even though you're tired. And that's really where it starts and ends, but it's also about spacing. And, and Josh and I, you know, playing together at Loyola for coach Shimadi, we were really coached very well in how to understand transition spacing and when to cut the crease. And, you know, your guy Maz talks about this and does this really well too. He knows when to stop at the arc, when to cut the crease, where the space is on the field, when he needs to be a clear out cut so I can get a shot or vice versa. Um, Brent and Hawk and I had that, you know, that chemistry better than any group I've ever played with. You know, we were all, all really offensive minded and eager to do that part of the game, but I also think we were smart and cerebral with it. And we played really well together because we weren't just turning the ball over a bunch. We were able to push, you know, I I say push three forward. So go for six on fives, you know, all the time. 
Um, and it's very rare an offense is getting three in the hole. Typically, at best, you're getting two offensive middies running back. So if you can create six on fives and then you're good enough at the spacing in transition to be able to space properly, it can lead to a lot of easy goals. But I, I think that's really challenging if you don't have guys who really know and understand how transition offense is, is supposed to be played. And, um, you know, I think in that group, I think Hawk was was more like Neek. Um, just really physical and always getting his hands on people on ball. And then, and then Brent, you know, a little bit more like me, obviously just has that speed and that ability to win races and, and stay on guys' gloves that way. So there's definitely some similarities. Um, the other similarity is I freaking love all those guys. And like, you know, I consider them all really, really great friends and, and have just loved getting to know Dominique and, and Moose is one of the most unique, interesting human beings on earth um you got to get him on here he's got he's got stories for days and, and is one of my favorite teammates <laughs> i've ever had so really lucky really lucky to get to be able to play with them and um excited for you know for more years of of watching moose and Nick bully people out there yeah i played with moose in florida and then i uh you know had a couple of run-ins with him on the archers um i know we were talking a bunch of shit to each other in 2019 and then um He's uh, obviously in BLA, so I've gotten close with him through that and again, got to know his personality a little bit more. He's fucking hilarious and just definitely a character. Um, he talks a lot of shit. He thinks he's a good basketball player. He's another one, though. Like, he's so smiley and friendly, but he will. He loves to talk shit on the field, too. And he's the type where it's like you say something to him, like, it's going to be funny, and he's like, I, I, I will fight you. Like, he's ready to just, like, he wants to get in a fight right there on the field. And then after the game, he's the biggest smile on his face, and he, like, he calls dudes sweetheart all the time. And like, it, it's just such a funny, uh, it's such a funny difference of his kind of on field and off field personality. Um, but you bring up hoops. Yeah. Moose and I, we talk a lot of trash to each other about sports in general. Um, and I've always been, been real confident in my basketball game. I know I'm not alone in the PLL of, of guys who think they're pretty nice at basketball, but that was certainly a, a sport I took very seriously my whole life. And, and uh, I still like to think I can, I can mix it up out there. I think there has to be some kind of PLL tournament that we have because I think there's too many guys that think they're good and not enough, you know, of it being proven on the court. I don't know what it's what it would look like, but I think the fans would be happy to see that. I know you, me, Joe Walters, Kyle, Miles, um, Perk, Moose. There's a lot of guys that that we all say we can hoop, but we got to get on the court and, and see what the fuck is up. No, that's a hundred percent right. A hundred percent right. And you know, like. I mean, everybody's got the strength to their game, but I'm a five-on-five full-court guy, you know, and I'm going to be pressing you full-court press the entire game. I'm going to be grabbing <laughs> rebounds and sprinting full speed. So you better, you know, hit the track and hit the trails if you want to if you want to play with me. I'm not out here for any half-court, you know, nonsense. Even one-on-one in college, we used to play full-court one-on-one game to 100, you know, for to condition preseason. That's that's what I like. I need I need to be able to get up and down because I can't uh, – I don't know if I can get up as high as all you tall guys. <laughs> Well, I look forward to uh, to getting that going. I'm the, maybe we should get a, a group chat started with the guys that are good at uh, at hoop. Um, but Rat, that's all I got for you, man. This was uh, really great. I, I really appreciate you coming on here and, and chopping it up with me. Yep, Jules, thanks for having me. Great job. I've enjoyed listening to all these. So uh, keep it up, and I'll see you in June, buddy. I'll see you on the field. That's it for this week's episode of Unbuckled. Appreciate you guys tuning in again. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you subscribe and rate the podcast. You can head over to Instagram and Twitter and give Rat a follow at SRAT2 on Twitter and Scott Ratliff2 on Instagram. We'll see you guys next week when we jump on with Blaze Reardon. Mm.